The Reality, How Catastrophes Teach Us About Coexistence. I'm Michaela. I'm Nova. I'm Indigo. And I'm Mateo. And we're going to teach you about Syria. Okay. Every single day, terror seeps through the darkest cracks in society, dominating our media, filling us up with fear, anger, and hopelessness for the future. But what if there was another way? So many people pray for peace, but is humanity willing to do what it takes to get there? What would it take to stop the endless blood spill from happening all over the world today? I'm Michaela Bespostredic, and this is the story of one immigrant's journey to his escape from the violence and destruction in Syria. We felt death upon us, and we accepted it. I can't describe it in words. Fez al-Shara says, Fez is one of many who have and are continuing to flee from the violent and increasingly dangerous living conditions in Syria. Before he, his wife, and his two young daughters were accepted for legal citizenship in the U.S., they lived near the city Dara, where the initial protest against President Bashar al-Assad took place. With the recent political unrest, rebellion has spread like wildfire in almost every corner of Syria, dividing up the Syrian population into opposing political and religious groups, the Shidi, Sunni, Alawites, and many others. The threat of death is a constant fear for those who live in Syria, making it almost impossible to trust anyone who passes by. Faiz recalls the tipping point for himself and his family, leading them to the ultimate decision to uproot from the only place they'd ever known. In March of 2013, Faiz al-Shirah, along with three others, were held at gunpoint by a military officer who accused them of being terrorists. The noise from the upset caught the attention of a woman whom Faiz did not know. She came rushing to their aid just in time, pleading with the officer not to kill her family, her friends, and her neighbors. In that moment, no one dared to move a muscle while the officer weighed his options. In the end, he decided to release them, and to their relief, at least for a moment, their lives were spared. But who would know if they'd be as lucky the next day? How would you feel if every day there was no way to know if it'd be the last time you'd ever see your family or live to see another sunrise? The traumatizing experience was the last straw for Faze and his wife. It shook them so much that the following day, they packed up the few belongings they could carry and escaped from Syria, fleeing to Jordan by an online smuggling service, and nearly died in the process. Here we have it in Faze's own words. The next day, at about 7 a.m., there would be a car near my home. The street my home was on couldn't have cars because there was a government checkpoint that closed that area. We walked towards the car, and when we reached it, Within five minutes, we faced a missile. There was a building that protected us. If it wasn't for the building, our lives would have been lost. His yet another near-death experience is definitely not an uncommon one. In Syria, everywhere you look, guns are being shot, missiles are being blown, and at least half a million of innocent people's lives are taken with it. <clears throat> the ultimate question is, what if there was a way to stop and prevent more strife, terror, and unnecessary casualties from happening in Syria and around the world? and really what is going on in Syria. I'm Nova Onesian and I'll tell you just that. There are currently 13.5 million Syrians that have had to leave their homes because of the current conditions in Syria. Syria is a country in the Middle East near the Mediterranean Sea. The western two-thirds of Syria are occupied by Israel and the eastern third is controlled by Syria. Syria's population is mostly made up of Syrian Arabs, Kurds, and Syrian Turkmen. Most Syrians are either Sunni Muslims or Sunni Arabs. Arabic is the official language of Syria. A strength that Syria has is the people and religious groups are very passionate about making a difference. 
However, Syria is divided into multiple religious groups with different intentions of Syria, such as the Sunni, the Shiite, and the Alawites, the Kurds, and more. Another weakness is Syria is controlled by President Bashir al-Assad, a leader promoting the Alawites. The most recent wave of immigration to the U.S. from Syria was in 2014. In 2011, the people of Syria were inspired by the Arab Spring and tried to overthrow their president, Bashir al-Assad, but were unsuccessful and that caused the country to go into civil war. Bashir has used chemical warfare against his own people who were peacefully protesting more than once. The conditions in Syria are so awful that there are about 13.5 million refugees that have fled Syria. Most refugees are in the bordering countries of Syria, and there's about 5 million refugees in the U.S. In the end, the people of Syria are going through so much right now. If we can help by giving them a safe place, place to sleep, then we should definitely be doing so. The religious groups of Syria have very strong opinions that are keeping them divided, and if they were able to coexist and work together, they could definitely make a difference in Syria. If the Shiite, Sunni, and other subgroups of Syria were to tolerate and even collaborate with one another, would these people finally be able to evoke a government to be proud of? Let's take a look into the catastrophic event of catastrophic event of South Africa that possibly reveals that answers to the downfall of Syria's violence. <clears throat> War cries rang through the streets. Streets soon stained dark by rivers of blood. This is how the fall of dictatorship in South Africa was celebrated after apartheid. These surprisingly recent events in South Africa were implemented in the, the mid-1900s. Laws rained down upon thousands of tribes and citizens of South Africa. This was apartheid. Black South Africans Black South Africans of Black South Africans were directed either by force or by choice out of their homes and into communities of dirt roads, broken irrigation systems, and rusting metal homes. Areas called townships. Areas sitting just outside the white cities. Areas that non-white South Africans on work permits called home. Mom, a young girl visiting the present-day area questions, are townships just rows and rows of sheds? And from an incomer's view, this young girl's description was spot on. Apartheid same laws took the lives of tribes, the lives of black workers, the lives of students. The ruling abolished these persons out of society and into homelands, homelands or townships only permitting their entrance when black labor was needed for jobs like coal mining or factory working. South Africa demanded all persons of their country to, at all times, carry an identification card stating their specific race and, if, applic if applicable, tribe type. People with different racial affiliations were granted better or weaker rights, thus causing persons to solely affi affiliate with their own people rather than band together with all their fellow peoples in persecution. Black citizens outnumbered white citizens by a ratio of about five to one at the time, with the warriors of the Zulu tribe, wisdom of the Koza tribe, and collective strength of the Nindabellis, Swana, Fuku, Venda, Sangha, and every other tribe in persecution, these peoples 
with the help of political leaders and strong organizations, were able to declare their rights and end apartheid by 1991. Following apartheid's termination, the city did erupt in turmoil. Racially black bodies began piling on the streets. The conclusion was clear. Non-white citizens were to be the new government, but as Trevor Noah says best, which non-white group exactly was to be chosen? Now this was the question. Instead of banding together and compromising, such as they had done to end this, this apartheid, huge numbers of peoples actually resorted to violence and witnesses spoke of the racially black blood that ran through the streets. Now, all of these complications illustrate that in moments of cohesion, the choices that South Africans made to tolerate and even collaborate with one another of different beliefs brought success, equated to a victory for the greater good. And when these people turned on one another, clashed, let their differences hinder their capability to work with one another, painful outcomes were evoked. Present day, if the Shiite, Sunni, and other subgroups of Syria were to tolerate or even collaborate with one another, would these peoples finally be able to evoke a government to be proud of? Let's take another look into how Syria is going on right now to get a better perspective on Syria's appearance. What about if we go over there and we see it with our own eyes and see the reality? I am a tail baby and I had a lot of experiences in the world. And one of them was to look at Syria. It was a normal day of summer in Israel with my family over there. We went to a water park in the border of Syria, Israel, and the Lebanon. Happened like two years ago, where Syria, where the civil war of Syria was still going on. We decided to go out to the border of Syria and look for a bit at the situation and look what's happening. We went with some binoculars to see it better. Distraction is what we saw. No one out of the streets and a really scary place and a silent place. Bombs certify the ambient over there. Even in Israel, the bombs are still in the land with posting signs saying dangerous. Scary, right? Well, pointing in Syria, we saw the structure of white buildings with no one in it. Ultimately, we know that the people of Syria are in need of help from one another. We know this collaboration will help fix their catastrophe because we've seen this work in the historic events of upper death. Tolerance and collaboration are the answers to solving global violence. Now is the time to take a stand and listen to one another. Let's face the reality. The world is in need of teamwork right now.